Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld, your host for today, and I'm so excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Leslie Breach, the Director of the Division of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology here at Cincinnati Children's. Today, we will consult with Dr. Breach on menstrual suppression and contraception. So we'd like to start and just learn a little bit about you, Dr. Breach. If you could just share um, a few sentences about your background, how long you've been practicing, maybe how long you've been at Cincinnati Children's. Sure. Thank you so much, by the way, for inviting me to join you today. Uh, these are always exciting topics for me, and I'm <laughs> hoping for everyone who will be listening. I am actually originally from Ohio, so from the Columbus area, and have been practicing here at Cincinnati Children's for nearly 19 years. Um, I had training on St. Louis and then went to Atlanta, so really been doing GYN for, oh my gosh, like 23 to 24 years. So a great field. It's been wonderful for me and been able to meet a lot of great patients and families. So thank you for letting me share some of my knowledge and experience today. Sure. And one little thing I was thinking about actually prior to this and kind of on the way here, just thinking about you and your specialty, do you have um, maybe anything to share about how did you first get interested in pediatric gynecology? Great question. I would say I was sort of born into OBGYN with my name of Dr. Breach. It was like, <laughs> you know, like destiny from the, the day I was born. Um, so not changing my name as I got married, et cetera. Um, you know, I have always been interested in sort of pediatrics. And fun fact that when I interviewed for residency, I interviewed both in pediatrics and in OBGYN. Uh, I think if I really understood ped surgery, then maybe I would have leaned that way. But honestly, um, I enjoy taking care of um, female patients and um, sort of some of those aspects about reproduction, et cetera. So it kind of led me down the path to pediatric GYN, which was really not a true field at that time, you know, back when we were like kind of um, in the dark ages and not being able to like actually use a phone or a computer kind of thing. And so it wasn't a true field at that point. So it took some time to sort of grow and develop. And um, we actually are very lucky at Cincinnati Children's, as in many other fields, to have a leader and innovator. Dr. Paula Hillard is well known throughout um, the country and the world for innovating in the field. And she spent many years practicing here. So I was able to join her here. But um, really the desire to help support and guide adolescent young people. It's a wonderful melding of, you know, those two interests you have. So thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. So today our conversation is on menstrual suppression and um, specifically considerations for the general pediatrician and guidance for prescribing these. So just sharing a little tidbit about myself, which I don't know if I should say this or not, but um, I would say in residency as a general pediatric resident, I don't feel like I got a lot of training you know, on this topic. And then interestingly, as I went out into practice, I joined a practice that was kind of just not really something that they did. Um, so within the last year then, I've transitioned to a new job and now all of a sudden it's boom. I've got to learn this now, which is great. And I think it's a great service to provide to my patients. But I do feel like it's, it's something that Maybe a lot of people don't feel like they have a wonderful background or wonderful um, training in, and then it just seems like a whole new world when you get into practice. So I'm excited to hopefully learn a lot myself. Yeah, I think it's it's not an uncommon story. Um, having moved here from other states uh, from training, I do think that um, 
many of the pediatricians have a similar experience, not having that same familiarity with prescribing the medications. And goodness knows there are so many different combinations. And oh my gosh, is there a pill form or a shot form? Or oh my gosh, there's one that you can like wear as like a Band-Aid kind of thing. So been all kinds of new innovation. I think even some of the OBGYN trainees that come and work with us are like saying, wow, we never learned this much even in our adult training. So I do think this population is one where there's a lot to be learned about the different medications, but there's sort of some algorithms and things we can go over today to make it easier. And there's also a couple go-tos, like this is my go-to for this, this is my go-to for that. And then if you always get too stuck, we have those ways to reach us through e-consults or PPL or little side notes on the side that we can help with. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we appreciate that. So first, I'd like to just talk a little bit about um, maybe some goals for families and patients for menstrual suppression um, and for contraception. You know, many different reasons why females and why families might, you know, choose to start these sorts of medications. Can you talk just a little bit to, you know, maybe the variety of different reasons why, um, you know, we may as a general pediatrician be prescribing these? Sure. I think um, we have found that over the years, of course, we sort of naturally think contraception is sort of the driving force where maybe we might be interested in any of these different therapies. But as, as time has evolved, we've kind of learned that really the period is certainly not fun for anyone. And most patients are like, wow, if I could have less periods, lighter periods, less frequency, who'd say no? And so suddenly it sort of be opened this sort of new area of the menstrual management or menstrual suppression. I think that sort of started as sort of a bit of um, in the field of endometriosis, with pain with periods, we started using medications in different ways to minimize the pain and the periods that patients would have. Realized we could do that for many more patients. Kind of started in maybe in the area of using pills in a different way, but variety of different therapies we can talk about today. But actually, as I've uh, worked as a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist, I found there's some other indications. Maybe some patients who might have a number of different disabilities that might um, either have a flare in certain behaviors or other things around their period may have challenges managing that menstrual hygiene. The period frequency or flow might affect their ability to engage in some of the therapy that they might choose to, swim therapy and other things like that. In addition to, I think that there are um, patients who have other conditions that might flare around their period, whether they have a bleeding disorder that might increase their risk of bleeding heavier and develop anemia, or patients who have really bad migraines. Nothing worse than a period to bring on a migraine and have the two of those at the same time. Absolutely. Um, And then lastly, I would say, you know, I think as we've recognized that some patients are experiencing some gender dysphoria, that sometimes having that menstrual period at all can bring on um, really some difficult challenges and symptoms. And so I think that we have understood that that's also important for patients and families. Those are great points, and I don't think that that's something that is at the forefront of our minds, especially those last two that you discussed. Um, so definitely good to consider all those scenarios and be able to have these tools at our disposal to help 
a broad range of patients. Um, so I'd like to delve into a little bit of just your guidance for what are some of the most important questions that you would recommend prior to initiating um, menstrual suppression or contraception that a primary pediatrician would kind of go through with their patients in terms of history, um, family history, um, and then just even delve into a little bit about contraindications to starting therapies. Are there some more relative versus absolute contraindications and things like that? Yeah, um, I think that I would refer a little bit. I think that we'll provide some information um, for those who are listening in regards to some resources. And one of those that we had developed uh, here at Children's Late 2020 was a prescribing guide that we have in the clinical support tools, which I think starts out with emphasizing what are some of those issues that we'd want to talk about ahead of time. Some of those may be those things that what are the goals? Is it complete suppression that someone is looking for? or um, more reliability of knowing when to expect the period so that we have those supplies and management strategies ready. Sometimes there might be things about the patient's own history medically, whether those are other conditions. Um, For instance, a personal history of thrombosis, a DVT or PE may mean that the patient is at increased risk of clotting and estrogen containing agents would then be contraindicated and more of an absolute contraindication in that scenario versus also thinking about, oh, seizures and using some of the anti-seizure therapies, some of those will um, interact with some of the estrogen containing agents. So thinking about other conditions that the patient may have. Migraine headaches, we briefly touched on, but there is an absolute contraindication, which I think we sometimes have some lengthy conversations with our neurologists. Um, but migraines with aura are considered to be a contraindication to the use of estrogen. Okay. Um, there are some other resources we use, like the WHO or the CDC have some what we call medical eligibility criteria. Nowadays, they make these things in apps, which is really great for us <laughs> older people so that we can always have our phone in our app with us to put <laughs> sure. a condition in and give us um, some of those safety parameters, like it would estrogen not be safe for that patient or would a progesterone-only agent be better for that patient? Um, there's just a couple other family history sort of things we ask about. Um, Again, that family history of thrombosis as well, that's less clear on the guidelines as far as how far back in the family. If my great-great-grandfather had a stroke when he was 75, am I eligible? And I think, wow, that's far out. Sure. (laughs) So I think we're probably okay in that scenario. But um, those kinds of family history. Um, We ask about also family history of female um, sort of malignancies like breast cancer, ovary cancer, uterine cancer, those kinds of things. Most of those would not be contraindications, but good to understand what might be fears, anxieties, or other risk factors for the patient. And then I would say the last would be um, the patient's history of hypertension, which again, not very common in many of our pediatric and adolescent patients, but definitely important to think about estrogen can be associated with a little bit of an elevation of blood pressure. So I want to be on the lookout for that. I think we've all experienced that um, perhaps there's a little bit more obesity in some of our patients. So sometimes that can be associated with elevation of liver enzymes um, with fatty liver, et cetera, in addition to hypertriglyceridemia. So I think sometimes our patients are becoming somewhat more adult-like with some of those medical risk factors with high blood pressure, like high triglycerides, 
elevated weight, elevated liver enzymes. So again, when those become more complex, we're happy to kind of help sift through those things. But generally speaking, those would be the medical things you'd be thinking about. Perfect. Thank you. You already touched on this a little bit, but, you know, entering as I admitted that I haven't had a lot of experience with this, but entering into this more recently, oh, my goodness, you know, you just, wow, there's a million different, um, even just pills versus, like you said, patch or IUD or um, implant, Depo-Provera, you know, going just everywhere. Um, Do you have any sense of kind of a good guidance for, you did touch on, you know, high blood pressure. Obviously, you want to steer more towards a progesterone-only treatment. But, you know, any just kind of, hey, if you this, this, and this, this is the best to start here. Um, And I know that's such a broad thing to ask you to talk about. So I appreciate you entertaining the question. Yeah, we had um, several of these discussions in our group when we were thinking about um, how we might chat with families because I think part of it is goals. Again, sort of complete suppression or regulating or lightening the period or decreasing the pain. Then understanding for them sort of the type of patient. Are you good at taking a medication every day? Um, What would be real side effects that would be extremely bothersome to you? Is weight the biggest issue? Is acne mood changes, those kinds of things. So we developed this table, (laughs) which I found that we thought we would use only in a few patients for menstrual suppression. And I find that I go in the room for almost everyone (laughs) carrying this little table we made called Options for Medical Management of Periods. And we had uh, separated sort of the combined estrogen plus progesterone agents on the top of the table. At the bottom of the table, the progesterone-only agents with this big dark line in the middle. So we say you have to go like below the dark line, which probably frightens the patient. But um, So I think the biggest things would be that a predictable period is going to be more with an estrogen-containing agent. If we want to space that out over several months, that's usually easily attainable with a combined estrogen plus progesterone pill or patch. And we'll talk a little bit about the duration of those. But those would be much more predictable in the bleeding patterns. For progesterone-only agents, below the dark line, um, (laughs) those are less predictable in the bleeding patterns. And so whether it's a short or long-acting agent, that is something that we start with in talking with the patient and family because if that predictability is very important, that will be a frustration very early on with trying an agent. Um, I think the other is that progesterone-only agents tend to have three side effects that most um, young people are not interested in. Without the balance of the estrogen, um, we worry about acne, the increase in acne that you can see with a progesterone-only agent, again, dose-dependent. Mood changes, leaning slightly more towards a depressed mood on a higher-dose progestin. And then lastly, the infamous weight gain that can be seen, again, dose-dependent nature with progesterone-only agents. So we kind of hit on those early on in the conversation, trying to sort of prioritize what's important for the patient and family, weighing sort of the side effects that might be less desirable. Sure. And the table and (laughs) the dark line that we're referencing (laughs) is part of our community practice support tool that we mentioned that will be linked on. Um, So just for everyone kind of following along. you mentioned some of the most common side effects, um, especially with each one. Um, do you feel like you have a, a good sense of 
and maybe it depends on the person, as you've kind of said, but what's the most common complaints you get? Uh, maybe even a little guidance, you know, breakthrough bleeding is something we hear about a lot. You know, how long when we initiate, say, a combined estrogen progesterone pill, how long should we tell patients and parents to expect, you know, for the body to kind of, you know, become in tune with the pill and breakthrough bleeding is going to be common for how long and how many months should we go on before we talk about dose changes, things like that. Again, uh, it's like you've done this before. <laughs> Not very long. Um, I was I like, promise. wow, this is great. She knows exactly what to ask. Um, you know, I do think we have certain go-to agents in certain circumstances. So, for instance, if a patient is, let's say, struggling with significant acne, um, we know that estrogen is, an age, estrogen is an agent that helps acne. So we'd say, gosh, we're going to go to a combined pill or patch or the infamous vaginal ring. But those will help acne. Versus someone who might say, gosh, it's, it's more important for me to have complete absence of my periods, and so we might lean a different way. Um, I think it also depends a lot about the patient and are they able to sort of take the medication as recommended. I think we all feel like we can take a pill every day until we have to. Um, and so sometimes things like, you know, the cell phone alarm, because we all know most of our teenagers are not far from their device. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, reminding them via that way is, is a great way. Because I think that um, I tell many patients and families that the birth control pills were made for birth control. And so they were made in a way that each month a period is designed to come to ensure someone that they're not pregnant. So we have manipulated medications that were made for other indications, and, and sometimes it doesn't work as well with either different combinations or if we're not using them exactly as we ask. So when we're shooting for extended periods of time without a period, it is critical to take the medication correctly each day. So many families, we don't start that from the very first day because the process of learning to take it correctly each day and maybe over the first few months, we do it the regular way, understanding that we're taking it correctly each day, the period is coming as we expect, and then extending that over time. Because you as alluded to that the first few months take some time for the body to adjust. If we start with a period, so I should tell families the first real day of the period is the best time to start because the hormone levels are at their lowest, and then we can get in there and minimize your body's attempt to make the period. Thus, we would have less breakthrough bleeding. Um, however, there are other reasons. Sometimes we're nervous and we need to get that in the system right <laughs> away. And if so, we know that there might be some irregular bleeding and we say, gosh, as long as over the first couple months, that tends to get better. But if persistent by month three, we might need to make some changes in the dosing or understand if we're taking it correctly every day. And typically with breakthrough bleeding that persisted more than three months, first step on a combo pill would be to just increase estrogen dose. Is that correct? Oh my gosh. You have, you know much more about these pills than you said. Look, she's, no. I don't know, weird, but um, yeah, it would. And we do have some of those kind of um, um, guides, again, on the practice tools about, gosh, if there's some breakthrough bleeding, maybe considering increasing a bit the dose of estrogen. Interestingly enough, when I trained, again, way back when, the doses of estrogen were about 35 to 50 micrograms of estradiol, thionyl estradiol in each pill. 
Now we use 20 to 30 in our standard dosing. So really half of what we used even when I trained, which is about a fourth of the doses of the original birth control pills that were released. So I think that is quite reassuring to, to parents for sure that the hormone exposure is much less than it may have been 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. And hopefully minimizing some of the other, you know, potential scary side effects, which is great. Um, This kind of came to my mind and maybe, maybe I'm jumping back a little bit. Um, But, you know, we hear a lot from patients and parents, I bleed excessively. That's why I need to be on some sort of menstrual suppression. Um, is there a good way to quantify excessive? Because you know how excessive obviously can mean so many different things to different people. And, um, you know, is, is there a good guide of, you know, everything from how many days or, you know, pads per hour or clot? You know, is there any kind of good way to, to give us where we can kind of say to patients, yes, that is, that is definitely excessive. I wish I had that in exact numbers, right? But I'm giving you all my secrets now. Um, You know, um, there are some general guidelines. And actually, we have um, some sort of guidelines that we say, well, you have period rules. And when your period is breaking the rules, that increases the risk for anemia or low low iron. So um, again, to credit my fellowship director, Dr. Diane Mayer, who's very well known in the field of pediatric analysis and gynecology, she had the old 1, 10, and 20 rule. So we say one is if you soak a pad or tampon every one hour for several hours in a row, that's the one, that's your period is breaking the rule. 10, if your period lasts for 10 days or more, that is in excess of what we think of as usual seven to eight, then that is also going to put you at risk for anemia. Or 20, it's less than 20 days. Unfortunately, you can't see, fortunately, you can't see me. But um, from the start, I always act this out. The the start of one period to the start of the next period, if it's less than 20 days between there, your body just doesn't have enough time to sort of recoup from that. Sure. And so all three of that, the 1, 10, and 20, when your period is breaking those rules, would put you at risk for anemia or low iron. Um, And so we give them that guideline from the beginning and some of the information that we provide for the patients and families. We also give the caveat that means you have to keep track. So again, the phone comes in handy um, because uh, Apple has a health app, which you can automatically have it on your phone um, that you could record your periods. But also there are several like Flow, Clue. There's a few Mm -hmm. apps that we like as well so that patients always have that information right there with them when they come to your office. And they sit for a long time, and you have a whole conversation <laughs> trying to figure out when was the last period. Right. Was that Christmas or was that New Year's? Wait, Valentine's Day? Right. <laughs> so um, having it on the phone is a great help. Um, it does allow me to introduce something that might be somewhat scary to everyone who's listening. But, um, you know, there is menstrual cups are something that patients are beginning to be more interested in using. Um, We've had several patients be interested in non-hormonal contraception and patients um, very interested in the impact to the environment and their world in the future. So interested in using menstrual cups that they could insert and collect the menstrual blood and then clean and empty that can be worn for a long period of time, even like 12 hours. So that does allow some quantitation of how much that is in the actual menstrual cup. 
I personally cannot imagine that most teenagers are interested in doing that. <laughs> However, <laughs> some of them do. And they would be able to quantitate, you know, exactly sure. how much blood someone is losing. And so historically we've said about 80 mLs okay. is something over the entire course of the entire period that someone would be sort of a normal volume. I can't I imagine just, any measuring happening, sure. but just like, I think I had recently read like two to three tablespoons that yeah. kind of makes sense. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so we don't have a lot of patients using those agents, but it does also allow me to introduce that you could also talk about period underwear, right? When you're, sure. if patients are saying, gosh, it's real hard for me because it's hard for me to change my pad or get to class. My class is way on the other side of the building. I can only go between classes. So um, used to be quite expensive and only in sort of the higher-end department stores. But now, gosh, at Target, you can get period underwear for, like, light, medium, and more um, substantial flow, which is either good on its own or a good backup for sure. patients to use as well. And those are two great things that I think we don't really think about telling our patients those things. You know, oh, they're here for medicine or they're here for this, but just some of those other lifestyle things that, that are good to share with them. It's kind of nice. I think also, and again, depending on sort of parents' age and what they've experienced, you know, I think that I would not have known all of those things myself. And um, hot off the presses, there's even, um, you know, period bathing suits. Goodness. So, you know, for the patient who's like, I'm going on vacation, I can't use a tampon. So often we have sometimes used some medicines, right, to control that, which we certainly can. But then also there might be the role for the use of the old period bathing suit for wow. that trip. So new things coming out all the time. Huh? <laughs> Not what I thought we were going to get into today, <laughs> right. but I, I love it. <laughs> I can take us anywhere on this conversation. <laughs> so uh, the other, my other thought, you know, in discussing how and I loved that one ten twenty rule because I do think it's a good easy thing that we can just kind of keep in our head to to quantify and you know some of it as we said is patient dependent on what they prefer what's tolerable for them as well as the medical risks like iron deficiency anemia and things we we discussed but I think it's nice to just have kind of that basic rule in our heads um, so speaking of that you know excessive bleeding. What if we're going, gosh, this does seem excessive, and yeah, we probably need to start them on something. You know, at what point do you think we should do a workup for, is there something else medically going on? Um, you know, is there a bleeding disorder here? Is there, um, you know, thyroid issues? Other things that we know can influence periods. Um, and then specifically, what kind of workup? Are, are there you know, basic labs that you can kind of recommend. I think some of them we would know, but, you know, you might even be able to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think that there are some certain tests that we might consider if things seem um, out of the bounds of what we would consider to be normal. So we do, um, we had created a flow sheet on a tablet, which again, because you can imagine how fun it is to ask the patient to quantitate how many pads or product they use, what was the last day, et cetera. So we do use the tablet, and that is something that, you know, in the EPIC system has allowed us to do, but um, to quantitate some of those things. But, you know, if someone is saying I'm using about the average is about four to six product in a day. So if we're saying, gosh, that seems to be exceeding that. Or, again, soaking a pad every one hour for many hours at a time. I think one of the things that also I clue into is not just the volume on the individual period, but if there's a very irregular pattern, and that irregular pattern is often influenced by other um, other aspects of the body, whether there's other hormonal imbalance, whether that's something like thyroid dysfunction, hyperprolactinemia, 
um, things that might also lead down the path of the PCOS and the hyperandrogenemia. So a very irregular pattern might also lead us to other evaluation. Then we can also say to patients and families, like there are medical reasons to play with the period or suppress or manage the period, but there's also the quality of life aspect. So even though we don't meet the criteria for severe anemia, we have certainly met the frustration factor and we might wanna do medicines for that reason. We would typically check for many patients if we're sticking them. And again, sometimes in a 12-year-old, that's not super fun. 16-year-old might be easier, or is it reversed? I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but I think that we get a CBC and ferritin, our typical kind of go-to. Um, and then TSH and prolactin are sort of the baseline for that irregular periods. If there was sort of the idea that on exam or historically things that might suggest um, elevated androgens like acne, hair growth in places that would be more predominantly male dominant or hirsutism, then we'd say, gosh, we'd maybe want to get those androgen levels as well, looking at PCOS. And there is a profile that we get for von Willebrands, and we've added a few other factors um, onto that with um, consultation with hematology. And that includes um, factor eight, because when elevated can also be one of those things that could lead to clotting. So we've included that on our von Willebrand's panel, looked at um, fibrinogen levels. So just a couple other uh, levels that we've included that we could share, again, what that profile would consist of. Sure. We have typically um, sort of reserved that for some of those situations that sound to be outside that 110 and 20 or some idea of a anemia, like for instance, I'm not sure this even exists anymore, but a finger stick, or maybe there was something where we had some other suspicion of anemia, um, presyncable episodes or dizziness or persistent headaches. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have patients come in when you kind of get more information, it's just they're just frustrated. Sure. And it's not really risk for anemia. I feel like we do, you know, hemoglobins quite a bit in the okay. office for that reason. So no, you're good. Um, and even sometimes, you know, oh gosh, they, they are bleeding so much. They are bleeding so heavily and they, but even sometimes just to say, hey, they are, and I'm sure it is a lot. I'm sure it is distressing, but it's not causing anemia because we can check and we can tell you that right mm -hmm. now. Um, so that sometimes I think is a very reassuring things for thing for patient and families to see. Um, so curious, kind of changing gears a little bit. Um, what would you say in talking about periods or talking about menstrual suppression would be some good reasons to, I know you mentioned e-consult and obviously you guys are available for questions, which is wonderful and we have the clinical support tools, but at what point as a pediatrician should I say, okay, enough's enough. I really need them to see a pediatric gynecologist. I really need help with what's going on. Are there some certain kind of specific scenarios that, that you could discuss? Yeah, I mean, I think um, sort of varies a little bit. I'm not sure that there are absolute um, indications we'd say you, we would strongly recommend that you refer the patient. I think you've kind of talked a little bit about your own comfort level as a provider. And I think if it's a lane that you haven't really been traveling in so much, you might be like, well, I'm, I'm gonna send that on. Sometimes there are some in your practice who love that area, and you may say, I'm just going to engage my partner, which happened in Absolutely. my own daughter's practice, um, and I felt like that was a great alternative for someone who might have had a little bit more experience in the hormonal medications. 
I think that perhaps if if you were to think about trying a medication, you know, if things aren't going as expected, that would often be the time we'd say, well, maybe we want to at least give you a little um, shot in the arm, kind of, um, you know, an e-consult or a telephone call or to help facilitate, you know, having a consultation either with us or quite honestly, our adolescent medicine colleagues are very well trained right in those hormonal medications as well. So want to give them a shout out as well yes. because they I are appreciate also that because you're right, we haven't mentioned that. Also amazing and a great group that we have here and I think we all work very well together. I think that perhaps if families are interested and it's amazing how much research some families do before they even get to the office now. They've like been all over the web and they're teaching me things that I almost didn't know. But, um, you know, if they're interested in maybe something that's more long acting, I think things like a progesterone containing IUD are a great option, which again, with the amount that I enjoy talking, we may never get to that today. But, um, but it is um, a great way to minimize periods and is long acting. And so that is a little bit more invasive. So we'd probably need to have that referral to see us. But you know, I think if things aren't going the way or if there are medicines you're not as comfortable with, um, we have worked in conjunction with hematology fairly frequently on patients who have pretty severe anemia because that's when we'll probably give some higher doses in order to obtain complete suppression, at least for about three to four weeks worth of time. And it's amazing how the body can really just build those counts back with iron supplementation and minimize the losing and bleeding. I'm like, wow this anemia is completely resolved. This is amazing. This is great. Now we might have to establish a different long-term pro- protocol or management strategy. But so I think in those situations um, might be the times I might recommend, you know, some interaction. But I would say that in a typical not severely anemic patient interested in minimizing or managing periods that could either be for acne or pain or I'm running cross country and I don't really want to have my period during cross country season. There are different, you know, um, options that we could talk a little bit about that I would think many pediatricians might be comfortable starting. Um, and actually, that kind of went right into if you would like to <laughs> talk a little bit about, which I have zero experience with, is just giving us a little rundown of some of the non pill options. Obviously, in the general pediatrician's office, the majority of what we're going to be doing is prescribing the pill. So I love that that's been most of our focus today. Mm-hmm. But I think just to have a general overview of what to tell parents of other options if we are referring on, instead of just, well, they'll talk to you about that. You know, these are the other most common, you know, things we see or things that can be used and, and these would be the benefits. And this is why we potentially are referring or asking for help from our gynecology colleagues? Sure. I think, um, and again, may sound somewhat similar if you if uh, you ever end up um, watching. There is a link, right, that we, I think, will also be sharing that has a video for parents um, and talks um, particularly around the lane of patients who may have um, disabilities and um, parents and patients may benefit from the menstrual suppression. So, we actually had a webinar and, you know, families would listen and call in, and type in some questions. So we recorded that. It's about a 20, 25 minute video. So it could be offered for patients and families, but um, some of this may sound somewhat similar. So no, unless your okay. providers <laughs> actually listen to it, they might be like, wow, you are putting me to sleep with no. this. But, um, you know, I think we we kind of work off that little table we talked a little bit about because we, we kind of group the medicines into those pills that you talked a little bit about, which are estrogen plus progesterone, and then a completely different category of progesterone only. 
So if we think about estrogen plus progesterone, we often just think that routine birth control pills. And I think, yes, those are great for very predictable periods, clearing up acne, minimizing cysts, very little other side effect. It's just hard to remember them Mm -hmm. every day. So that's where there are a couple of patches. Um, Historically, for about 20 years, there was one patch, and now there is a second patch. So be, as you tell families, like a Band-Aid. You can put on the backside, and you wear it for a week at a time. Don't have to think about it day to day. It gives you those same benefits that you would have from the pill that you take each day. It's just less manipulation if maybe you got a little headache with that one or maybe you thought you had some mood changes or something. We just don't have only two of them, so we can't make a lot of changes. Sure. There's also, like I mentioned earlier, the infamous vaginal ring, which um, usually is one that is used for a month at a time. So if a patient is comfortable using a tampon or a menstrual cup, they may say, yes, I'm very comfortable putting a ring in. has estrogen plus progesterone, all those same advantages. They would just take that out after about three weeks and then leave nothing in for a week. And that's when their period would come, and then they would put a new one in. So each month, they put a new one in. There, there is something newer, um, which is something that's a year long, but we have not engaged in like using that a lot in our practice yet for adolescents. Just I'm not sure if you've noticed, but many adolescents lose things. And so not it's been all. a little nervous <laughs> for me to think we're going with that, but there would be some other options. And that's sort of the estrogen plus progesterone category, which little side effects, little waking, great for acne, but just vary in day-to-day, week-to-week, and month-to-month for how often you administer them. Sure. And those can be used um, either in that month-to-month dial or in extended fashion. So we say, well, maybe every other month or every third month you would then take the period pills or you would leave the ring out or you would leave a patch off. Instead, you may decide, gosh, I'm going to do three patches, three patches, and three patches, so nine in a row. So on the 10th week is when I would leave a patch off, and that's when I'd have my period, every 10 weeks instead of every four weeks. And that can work very well for many patients, and then they know when to expect it. Um, So we call that extended cycling. If that works very well, sometimes patients decide, oh, well, can I just do it all the time? Like, is that a secret? Can I do it? (laughs) And so continuous cycling would be that same behavior, but just not ever having that off week. And again, once a well-established habit, that might be something that can work very well for for some patients. Certain combinations of estrogen plus progesterone seem to work better for that than others. So sometimes you will find um, on our guide where we might say, gosh, extended or continuous cycling, we favor certain ones because they seem to have less breakthrough bleeding when doing that. And then when we go to the progesterone-only category, um, often call that sort of the wah-wah category. <laughs> and that's because, again, some of those side effects, they don't have the estrogen to balance it out. And so, you know, we encounter this in patients who might have inflammatory bowel disease. They're not um, typically a candidate for estrogen. Migraines with aura. Um, patients who may have had a DVT in the past. And so this category in any systemic progestin therapy would be at risk for those weight gain, acne, and mood issues. Um, There is a pill form, and honestly, we should hit on the newer pill form. Um, Anyone who's listening who's been practicing for any period of time may have heard of the mini pill or micronor, (laughs) the microdose of pill, (laughs) as I tell the family, it's the microdose of norethindrone. Um, and, and that is a dose-dependent sort of side effect. So in that microdose, typically not having a lot of those other side effects, but a less predictable bleeding pattern because those pills, the micronor, actually have no period pills. 
So every day when you are taking them, it's every day the same. And you may have a period, you may not. So it's hard if we're doing this for menstrual suppression to say, I'm not sure when maybe, to maybe expect not. it. <laughs> yeah. um, if it's for a heavy period, you'll be thrilled because it will lighten the period. It will still give you uh, pain relief and things like that. SLIND is the new one, which is drospirinone. No quizzes at the end on these names, I promise. But drospirinone is the same progestin that's in Yaz and Yasmin, which is the one that we have found is a little bit better for acne. And thus, if maybe someone is obligated to using progestin only, maybe this is a good option for them okay. with less of that acne, less of those other side effects. It does have those four period pills at the end, as does the Yaz, and so patients may see their period come then. Anecdotally, it seems to start out like with a honeymoon phase and then less timely on those periods. Sure. I do have to admit, I love some of these names and especially some of the brand names. I mean, and a lot of them, I think, are funny, too, because, oh, this one's Heather, and this one's, like you said, yeah. Janelle and Nikki. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, Nikki, I think, is a generic for yes, who um, it, it did have some irregular bleeding over the course of the pandemic. And sometimes, you know, things were substituted at your pharmacy. Sure. But Nikki was trouble. Oh, trouble no. was Nikki. <laughs> um, and then as we think about those longer-acting agents, um, I think that the injection or the Depo-Provera, which probably many have heard of, um, had sort of accidentally been found to be something that we use for menstrual suppression because um, upwards of 75 to 80% of patients over the course of the first year will become amenorrheic. And so in that circumstance, we'd be like, yahoo, but I'm like, ooh, who can make it till then? Right. Because over the first several dosages, there may be a lot of irregular bleeding and weight gain. So those are the two big side effects that can be very frustrating to patients. I mean, let alone, I'm not a big fan of an IM injection regularly for me and my backside. But, you know, in some patients, it may be better for them every three months. We have just veered away from that um, due to those other side effects. Makes sense. And better options. I think the um, next Splanon, so I usually say the next Splanon is sort of the less bad of the depo Provera versus the next one. I try to improve on all those side effects, make it last longer, up to four years or through the full three years instead of three months, um, less weight gain, um, less irregular bleeding, um, less percent of patients who would have irregular bleeding. If you happen to be one of the minority who get that, it unfortunately just seems to stay the whole three to four year time frame that you're using the medicine. So it's a little bit of a, a, a risk of saying like, ooh, am I gonna be the one? Um, only about 20% of patients will then have amenorrhea. Okay. So unless there are patients that may have, let's say, um, other issues like incontinence or maybe other things where it wouldn't be such an issue, if maybe we had some irregular bleeding unexpectedly, we may say, oh, that might not be an issue at all. Sometimes for contraception, just it is the most reliable for contraception is the next Nexplanon at 99.7% wow. effic efficacy. So for sometimes that's the best for certain patients. Sure. And thank you for touching on that because I know that's that's something we really hadn't talked about. And in our little table, we ended up putting on the side, even though we're rarely using it for contraception, but we did put that column, like letting people know the efficacy for that. Sure. And then we have found that um, we love the IUD, <laughs> um, the progesterone-containing IUDs, because um, at least the highest um, dose one um, that has 52 milligrams of levonorgestrel um, can last up to eight years now. It's been extended over the past wow. few years. 
and up to 60% of adolescents will become amenorrheic over that first year, but about 90% reduction overall in the blood flow and is still, again, 99.2% effective for contraception. So it has all those fabulous things. It's just the big question comes up at the end, how are you going to get that in there? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's an inside the uterus device. So Dr. Reach, how are you proposing you're going to get that in there? Um, And and we certainly have um, different ways of approaching that. If we're thinking of contraception, many patients have maybe had some intimacy and may not feel as apprehensive. Many patients are actually using tampons, et cetera, can tolerate actually much better, but we would often pre-medicate patients with an NSAID and then occasionally if there's a lot of anxiety around that, sometimes we use a one-time dose of something to relax a patient when coming to clinic for that placement and typically often in clinic. We just touched on there some patients who might have some other reasons for needing to suppress periods much younger, maybe some other conditions, perhaps autism or other behavioral concerns. And in that case, there would be no way that we could place that IUD without um, using some sedation. Sure. So we definitely have that also as an option. Excuse me. At the hospital, we do have the procedure center, which allows us just to use some sedation if needed for a brief procedure, or even in the OR. Um, We often find ourselves like combining procedures with others. Oh, by the way, (laughs) I have to get a colonoscopy. Do you think that you could run in and get that done at the same time? I'm like, sure. Let's just make sure that someone's on the campus at Liberty sure. or the main hospital. Yeah. So um, we are known to be people who are flying around and combining <laughs> things with other procedures. Which is wonderful for the patients, definitely. So well, that's great. Um, I think the advantage, I would say, is um, the difference when we go over all the um, medications is the IUD is really the only one whether progesterone or not, that really focuses more locally. And so I had mentioned that those progestin-only sort of side effects are kind of the more systemic exposure. So even with the IUD, we find it's great for patients because we minimize that effect on acne. We minimize that effect on weight because it's a much greater concentration in the pelvis. I would have never thought about that, but it makes perfect sense now that you say it. It's a great option option for those patients, particularly if they're stuck behind the dark, under the dark line there, and maybe migraines with aura or um, other patients who might, as I said, inflammatory bowel disease, et cetera, where they're on steroids and other things or other medicines, and they're just struggling, right, with weight or other things. And I'm going to walk in and say, oh, by the way, this might, you might gain weight with this. So um, it's been a great option. I think it's um, been historically a little uh, more apprehension probably from parents about the use of an IUD, but I would say that there is no data to suggest that we would have any concerns for future fertility from using the IUD itself. We ask ourselves why we're using it and what is the indication, but no concerns for future fertility from that side of things. Interesting, though, we're getting lots of moms who have themselves enjoyed the benefit of the yes. IUD now. And um, and so I think that's also made the conversation a bit easier. To yes, have, definitely. Yes. So, well, uh, we have had tons of wonderful information shared here. And I have I have appreciated all of your knowledge and sharing with us and answering um, lots of questions. And I think we have a, a great um 
you know, a great sense of kind of what to share with the PCPs and our general pediatricians. And I did just want to remind, we've referenced it quite a bit, but the links that will be available to a lot of the things that we've been referencing during this talk. Um, so thank you, Dr. Breach. Thank you for your knowledge. Thanks for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule. And um, it's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a great pleasure for me as well. I want to thank you for a great afternoon. And um, yeah, anytime we want to chat about any of this dishy stuff, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah.